Welcome back to the Live from AC Second Feed. I'm Sam Mulberry. Uh, today's interview was one that I did back in March of 2015 uh, with Bethel Professor Emeritus Dan Taylor. Um, I had a class with Dan Taylor in the uh, in my senior year, so that would have been the fall of 1998. It was one of the most important classes that I took, especially a class that wasn't in my major. Um, he taught 20th Century Lit, and I just fell in love with all of the writers that he was talking about. So um, this interview, we, we we go deep on some of those things. Um, this is a fun inter- interview to go back and review um, and listen to again. Um, Dan Taylor is just a really fantastic teacher and a really important person um, to shaping a lot of a lot of my life, both directly and indirectly. And we'll talk about that on today's pod. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to the Autobiography Podcast. My name is Sam Mulberry. Um, my guest today is Professor Dan Taylor. He's Professor Emeritus um, here at Bethel. I think he retired in 2010 or 2011. Um, he taught in the English department here at Bethel, and we talk a lot about that. Um, and he's someone that I had for one class in my senior year. I had him for 20th century literature, uh, and it was one of my favorite classes, and he was one of my favorite teachers. Um, so it was really, really fun to sit down uh, and talk with him um, about that class, about his life, um, about teaching, about writing. Um, he recently has come out with his first novel, Death Comes for the Deconstructionist. So we talk a little bit about that at the top of the show. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a really, uh, really interesting read, really good read. Um, if you want to uh, get a hold of the show, you can email at autobiographypodcast at gmail.com and you can find the show either on iTunes, um, searching for Autobiography Podcast, or at autobiographypodcast.wordpress.com. But without further ado, here's my interview with Dan Taylor. My guest is Dan Taylor, um, uh, former member of the English department here at Bethel. Right? When? What year did you retire? Uh, 2010. Okay. And I'm going to apologize up front. Um, I had you for one class in the yes. 16 years ago, um, and it was way too important of a class to me. I feel like I remember everything you said in that class, so I apologize because no one should be held to something that they said 16 years ago. Right. So, um, but well, if it's a negative, I'm denying it. And if it's positive, I'll embrace it. It's all, it's all positive. It's, uh, it was a res- taking that class was a result of, um, when I, I was, came to Bethel as a computer science major and changed my major to history, but the history major is pretty small. Yes. So I finished my history courses right away. And I remember talking to Neil Lettinga and I said, I asked him what I should minor in cause I had all these extra credits. And he said, he said, for what you want to do, like a minor's not going to matter. He said, instead, Talk to people, talk to students in other departments, and just minor in the best teachers at your school. That's a great advice. So you were on that list of people. I, I had that's you a lot wonderful. of English majors. So, and, you and talked to some strange people. That's right. That's right. So um, also, I guess we'll put the plug in up front. Uh, your right. new book is uh, Death Comes for the Deconstructionist. This is your first novel? First novel, yep. I published some short stories just kind of indifferently throughout the years, but this is the first time for a... No. Okay, and I had the chance to uh, to go to your reading on uh, the, uh, earlier last week, um, and got excited and got the book and read it, and I really really enjoyed it. And I will say, I read the first half, kind of wondering like, am I enjoying this? Like, this is good for somebody that I know having yes. And the, by the time I got to page one hundred, uh, there's a road trip in the book, and when they get to the road trip, I uh, I'll, I kind of forgot you wrote it, and I was just this is re- I was just really into the oh, book. Excellent. So, so that was that was. That well, was great. I put in so many pop culture references 
that anybody over 40 should find one that pleases them. That's right. That's right. Um, so you said you said at the talk that you started you started thinking about this book or writing this book in the 90s? Is that Early right? 90s, yeah. It's probably went through six major revisions and then long you know, passage of time between even looking at it and actually when an editor expressed interest in it, he had read uh, a version, he doesn't know how many years ago, I don't either, 10 or 12 years ago, and uh, asked me if anything had happened to it or been done with it. And I said, no, and in fact, I hadn't looked at it for about three years so uh yeah it's 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 very much a kind of been a back burner project and then you know became a front burner because okay. of his email sure and in the book is set in around the year 2000 or in the year yes. 2000 yes mm-hmm. uh, was what was the the thought behind that that was his thought it was originally set in the 1980s uh which was the height of deconstruction <coughs> uh, excuse me i have bronchitis <laughs> no um but he thought the 1980s was a boring uh, decade, and if I was going to write sequels, I was kind of going to be stuck back. So he encouraged me to bring it up closer, and so I brought it up to 2000, which was the closest I could get it and still retain some of the plot mm-hmm. devices. Yeah, I found it interesting because that was my first year in graduate school at the University of Minnesota, and mm. Grant, I wasn't in the English department, but I have to say so much of the, the tension between um, Abramson and Pratt, mm. it just I wanted my wife's going to read this because she's a big fan of mysteries, but I wanted to read it because I want to say this is why I didn't like graduate school that much. Yeah. It was it, it, it captured that really well. I I actually partway through school decided that I was going to seek out the Abramsons of the world because right. because those were the people that would let me write the kind of papers I was more right. interested in writing. Um, but I, yeah, I just I just found that very interesting. I think a lot of grad programs are are. Uh, capable of killing the love of their discipline in the hearts of uh, their students. It's sad, but it's, uh, I think it's certainly true in English. You know, the, more, the more English lit became theory-oriented, um, and not just as a kind of a base or a background, but as a foreground, I think the less and less uh, attractive it became to the average person who loves literature. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is sort of out of linear sequence, and obviously you weren't in graduate school in the '80s. But are are elements of that sort of um, the potential to kill your love for literature? Is any of that reflected in your own graduate school experience? Not so much. Really, I I went to Emory University in Atlanta, and I chose it. I, theory was just starting to take over then, and I was aware of it coming out of a small Christian college, Westmont College, which is like Bethel. Um, and I didn't want it, so I looked to find programs that were still a little bit retro. Okay. And uh, Emory, which was a you know a very respectable institution, had one, and so I, I I went there and pretty much avoided that kind of thing. Okay. Well, maybe as a way to get into the autobiography, I think one of the first questions that that uh, came to mind is, I mean, you're obviously a professor of literature, and a, I mean, this is not the first book you've written by far. Um, but but your first your first novel, which came first in you, uh, the sort of dream to be a writer or dream to be a lover of literature, and and maybe those things are the same thing. I don't know. Well, they're not at all for me. I I never actually I am still hesitant to call myself a writer, because you know I have this view of writers are Dostoevskys, Tolstoys, Faulkners. You know I might let in Hemingway, but I'm not sure even. Hmm. Um, so and it's it's unrealistic. 
Well, so, can, can, you, can you give me that definition? I mean, you gave well, me an I example. Mean, you know, it's it's a writer. It, it's very romantic on my part. A very uh-huh. romantic notion of the writer as someone who's their whole life is writing, and they write these incredible uh, world and creating and world embracing uh, works, and that you know give us all uh, guidance and or at least you know hook our interests. So for um, you know, I, and I actually didn't, also didn't yearn to be a teacher or a professor. Even when I went to graduate school, I thought this is a, a better way to spend four years than Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, for instance. But uh, I didn't assume it's a disaster if I don't get a job afterwards. So initially, I thought of myself as just a teacher. And I started doing some writing, you know, even, you know, I started teaching fairly early um, 26 when I got my PhD and <clears throat> so uh, I started doing some writing even in my 20s but I always thought I'm a teacher then I started thinking to myself I'm a teacher who also writes and then uh, in the early 90s I got a um, chance to work on a Bible project that reduced my teaching load which enabled me to write more and so I kind of thought I'm sort of a writer teacher but it wasn't really until I finished teaching that I could say it even entertain the idea oh well I guess I'm a writer um, so I, I I'm willing to admit to being a writer now here at the end of the <laughs> of the term so you, so you, you talked about people who you sort of put in definitely in the column of writers and some right. people um, who you don't when you think about um, how do I ask this question when you when you think about writers who make you want to write yes because that's different than what your influences are or writers you like right uh, I, I'm not somebody who writes but I, I, I but I think about there are certain works of certain artists who make me I look at a, a painting by Ben Sean or by Van Gogh and that makes me want to paint uh-huh. I look at the Sistine Chapel and it makes me want to be in awe of created things but but it doesn't make me want to you know, get out brushes and paint. Like, who makes you want to write? Well, you know, I have a... That's an interesting question. I like that question. Um, Really excellent writing is both attractive and makes you want to write and scares you away. So I think somebody like Marilyn Robinson uh, in a book like Housekeeping, the prose is so amazing. You know, I mean, I just... There is no practic- there's practically no plot to the book. It's just with this, you know, it's all sensitivity and insight in the character. And, and, but these sentences. And so when I read something like that, I, I aspire to use language well. I don't aspire to write like Marilyn Robinson because I couldn't. <coughs> and I probably shouldn't. Um, but I aspire to, to use, to honor language, I guess you might say. Um, on the other hand, it's easy to read something that's so good and say, oh, you know, that's just for different sort, you know, a different level of human being than I am. Um, so, yeah, uh, Marilyn, somebody like Marilyn Robinson, somebody like Solzhenitsyn with his moral earnestness and showing how you actually can write great stories and also uh, – have within them values and virtues and ways of seeing the world that keep it from being preaching. I mean, the great story writing keeps the values from being preaching, but the, all the other things, the, view, the vision of life there 
keeps the writing from being just showing off how good you are with words. So when I see a writer like a Solzhenitsyn um, or, you know, in, in poetry, a T.S. Eliot, who can combine, uh, you know, a deep understanding wisdom, really, with craft, that makes me want to try at my own level something like that. So if we go, if we go back... To, you said you you know you didn't initially think of yourself as a writer or even a teacher when you were necessary when you were in grad school you weren't necessarily thinking about all of those paths. If we were to go back even to sort of younger days of, of Dan Taylor, uh, I always ask this question I think in, in the frame of my kids. So my son is nine. So mm-hmm. if we were to ask nine year old Dan Taylor, you know what do you, what do you want to do? What kind of things would you? Have well, that's when life was the clearest, and the obvious answer was I wanted to be shortstop for the Dodgers, and. There was no other. There was no other goal in life. I, you know, the Dodgers were my religion. You know, baseball. Just that, if I had an envision ideal life, that would have been it. By, um, and I was a very good athlete in grade school. By middle school, my uh, genes were betraying me, hmm. and I had to start getting realistic. So then I switched to, okay, I'll be Vince Scully. I'll be the broadcaster for the Dodgers, and go to every single game. Um, so that, you know, that was sort of the limit of my vision at the time. I, I couldn't imagine. There was a period in which I thought I have to be a preacher because <clears throat> the only important thing to do in life is to tell people about Jesus so they don't go to hell. And I hated the idea of being a preacher, but I thought I just got to do that because if I don't, a lot of people are going to go to hell. But I got over that. Where were those messages coming from? Oh, fundamentalism. Raised in Texas and other places. Um, my, my father was a pastor. He was a fundamentalist in theology, but not in lifestyle or attitudes. He kind of was a, he raised us with an open hand, not, you know, so I don't think I'm hugely scarred, but um, the theology and everything was clearly there. And, and uh, so... I wrestled with those things. I, I find that interesting. I, the, the the language of um, you know that that's that that's what you grew up in, and you're not scarred by it. What do you do? You feel like you carry things with you from that still? Well, you know, I have a different attitude toward fundamentalism than a lot of ex fundamentalists who, you know, it's it's a kind of sport to to uh, mock and uh, you know shake your fist at the fundamentalists who raise you. I have great respect for the fundamentalists. And um, it occurred to me at some point in my life, I can't put my finger on it, that these were the people who cared enough about me to try to save my soul. And first off, they gave me credit for having a soul. And then they tried to teach me what they thought was necessary to preserve it and to link me to God. So uh, I can't live with them. And, you know, at many, many points I disagree with them, but I kind of honor them and you know, it's it's not just the fundamentalist, this big abstract people. It's specific Sunday school teachers. You know, mm-hmm. it's even Mr. Ring. That sure. Mr. Ring in the novel is Mr. Ring when I was in fourth grade. Hmm. I mean, that I just took his name. I didn't think he'd, <laughs> he'd mind if he's still alive. Um, you know, here he is trying to teach these little kids. He, you know, so God bless him. And I actually think fundamentalists of all sorts, you know, political, uh, environmental, are helpful to a society because they're kind of they're extremists, but they they are uh, canaries in the mine. They kind of warn us of things we need to pay 
everybody else needs to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So it was it would in your life was there a a um, distinct moment of break with that tradition or was it a move away from or Yeah, it was just an evolution. Okay. I'm I'm not a confrontive kind of guy. So uh you know when I'm when you're a kid you don't know what you don't know the term sure. fundamentalist. Right, right, right. You just you believe in Jesus or you don't. And you know, you know the first kind of eye opener is to realize that people other people some other people don't. And uh you know, so I would say you know, by the time I was in late middle school, I probably was no longer a fundamentalist, but I didn't know that particularly. Okay. And, you know, my Christian college education was crucial in sort of confirming that move toward a different way of understanding the faith tradition and the world. And so now I call myself a Christian humanist, which kind of confuses people. Right, Which right, is right. part of the attraction. Right. Well, I, f- I find that interesting. Uh, I have a completely different background and, and story but there it's the similar in terms of the the non-break i grew up in the catholic church mm-hmm. and just sort of I, mean, I went to bethel so like there's something had to happen between there mm-hmm. but I, I mean i can't even pinpoint a moment when i would be when i remember people would ask me when i was a i was a student here like when did you stop being catholic and i would sort of look at them and say i i i don't know and you know i still don't know i still don't, like i can't point to a to a moment um, and and you know that that's problematic in lots of ways for people. Um, yeah. But uh, and 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 in my life, it was something that I've sort of moved around. Felt like I could move around, and but I also don't feel damaged by it. No, I you know my Sunday school teachers told me that Catholics weren't Christians um, because they thought they don't believe in the resurrection. Because you look at their crucifixes, and Jesus is always on the cross. Hmm. And I'm eight, nine, and I look at, well, there always is Jesus on the cross, I guess. Well, I guess Sound logic. <laughs> yeah, they're not like us. And uh, at some, you know, at some later point, it starts dawning on me that that was a kind of a distorted way of understanding things. Yeah. But, uh, again, I think you can be, uh, you can bless your roots without uh without approving of everything that happened in them. Mm-hmm. Um, did, were you a reader as a kid? Was that? I was. I I can remember very clearly sitting, this is a, when I lived in Ventura, California. Uh, I must have been about four or five. And I there was these children's books which were read to me. And I can remember sitting in the living room and looking at the book, no adults were around, and and threatening the book in a way that I'm going to read you someday, you know. You just wait. I'm going to be able to read you. And so I was eager to to read, and uh, and once I started, I read a lot. I was, you know, one of these kids who had to, when you had the contests in grade school, to earn points by reading little blue biographies of mm-hmm. American history people, I would read them all. So that I made sure I got maximum points, you know, even if it was twenty-five of them. Mm-hmm. Was it something you enjoyed or something you did? No, I enjoyed it. Okay. I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the points. Mm-hmm. It was there's various levels of reward for reading, right? Do you, do you uh, <laughs> do you remember the first thing you read that um, uh, that you did? You either read. Because, not because it was something you know for the points, or just something where where you realized there was something more to reading than. Right, I just chose a book out of interest, yeah. or or a book affected you in a way that it hadn't before. Mm. You know, I think all of most of those details are long lost. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I can certainly speak to books that kind of blew my socks off, like Lord of the Rings, but I was, you know, 18 when I read that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess I can't identify mm -hmm. a first book. Is, is, your, uh, is your impression that you were that um – I love the boxcar Oh, okay, sure, sure. I, I read sure. those sort of. So, who was putting the other besides besides teachers with their uh, with their little blue biographies? Who was putting books in your hands? You know, my father was a reader. Uh, it didn't really start though big time for him until I was older, and he, then he became a compulsive reader. Almost, he would shut his office door, and you wouldn't see him for hours because he was trying to figure his life out. Um, I don't recall there being a lot of reinforcement for reading. Mm -hmm. Particularly, it was it was just something that, and I don't think my brothers were particularly readers, mm -hmm. so it wasn't necessarily a family emphasis at all. It's just something I was a little bit of a loner kid by choice, mm -hmm. and so I would disappear into my room with a book while they were everyone else was watching television. Um, but I don't recall anyone directing me. Mm -hmm. So as you got into high school, were you a good student or? Yeah, I was. Okay. Yeah, I was a kind of a compliant little kid who did all the things to get praise. Are you the oldest? No, middle oh, okay. of three boys. Oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I was very, I was always a good student. Okay. So when you, uh, were you living in California when you chose to go to Westmont? Or? Yes. Okay. So what was, what was the, the choice of Westmont? I, I had absolutely no direction for choosing a college. Uh, I had won some awards, so I was getting flooded with unsolicited mail from colleges, and I um, they just they just were all a big blank to me. And my parents didn't talk about it. So, in my senior year, somebody from George Washington University in St. Louis came through our high school and did a little slideshow for about 15 minutes, and people who were interested could go do it, and I don't know if I just wanted out of class or what. But I went to it, and I thought, well, that looks good. I'll, I'll go there. So mm -hmm. when people would ask, where are you going, I'd say George Washington University, St. Louis, uh, for no other reason than he showed up. Um, but then my mom, my older brother, was already going to Westmont, and my mom says, oh, you know, the first two years you study the same thing anywhere, so why don't you go to Westmont, then you can transfer. And I, I just said, Okay. So I mean, I was just very malleable. Sure. And so sure. I ended up at Westmont. W was college just that was just going to happen, or is that a, was that a, a consideration of whether to go to college or not? No, it was just going to happen. Okay. Okay. So what did you study when you went to, or what did you begin studying? Um, you know, I had this mentor who was very important in my life and still is, <clears throat> and he and I played uh, sports together all through my high school uh, because we went to the same church. Mm -hmm. So we played softball, basketball, and I knew he was at Westmont, but I didn't know if he was a janitor or what he was. So when I finally got there, I found out he's a professor. Hmm. And uh, in fact, the first time I saw him, I said, hey, Ed. And he says, well, Dan, you know, here here on campus, you should probably call me Dr. Erickson. I went, whoa. Um, but he was an English prof, and so he sort of let me alone my first year, but at the end of my freshman year, he kind of grabbed me by the throat and said, you should be an English major. And again, I'm the same compliant kid. Sure. And I said, okay. And then about my junior year, he said, you should apply for some uh, grants or, you know, various things. I said, oh, okay. 
So I applied for him, and they said, you should go to graduate school. So I said, okay. <laughs> so so if it weren't for him. <laughs> it wasn't for him, I probably would have been a history major. Oh, really? Because okay. I, I, <clears throat> I mean, I, when I thought of, well, what are the disciplines, I could only probably come up with three or four. And I wasn't, I was pretty good in the sciences, but I wasn't drawn to them. I thought, I liked history, so I thought I probably would have been a history major. So were you thinking, um, <laughs> were you thinking about career at that point, or were you <clears throat> sort of floating no, along? No idea. No, no idea about career when I started college. How about as you moved, as you as you sort of progressed on, though? Well, this professor, Ed Erickson, Doctor Ed Erickson, uh, encouraged me to start thinking in those terms and possibly being a professor. So I, yeah, that idea became a possibility for me. So, what do you think that he that he saw in you? Because he wasn't doing this for everyone, or maybe he was. I don't know. He, he did it for a number of people, okay. actually, but uh, you know, clearly not for everyone. Um, well, you'd have to ask him. I mean, obviously, you need a. <clears throat> I mean, he had to have seen a minimum of intelligence to think this guy could do graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So, what were what were things that you were reading in college that were sort of lighting you up? Well, he introduced me to Solzhenitsyn. He actually in an amazing turn of events, became Solzhenitsyn's editor in the United States Mm. for the Gulag Archipelago because it was a huge multi-volume work. Very important, but not widely read because so large. And he had the, with the encouragement from another Russian scholar, had the chutzpah to write to Solzhenitsyn and say, you know, I think your book would do better if, if we had a, revised, you know, slimmed-down version. And Solzhenitsyn wrote back and said, I think you're right. You, why don't you do it? Hmm. And so he became, you know, he visited Solzhenitsyn in Vermont numerous times and got to know his family and came out with what is still the, you know, the reduced uh, gulag. What was the question? Uh, what were the things that, What were the things you were reading oh, that were all right. So up? he yes. introduced me to Solzhenitsyn. Um <clears throat> Who you know? I mean, the thing that's just so powerful. I maybe the single most powerful thing I think in literature and certainly in film is moral courage. And writers who demonstrate moral courage, especially if it's backed up with their own lives, as Solzhenitsyn's is, are incredibly powerful for me. And but if they can demonstrate genuine moral courage in their works and in their life. Um, so that's why Solzhenitsyn made a – I mean, that's why Tolkien made a big impression on me, which I read, I think, right before going to college or right around my freshman year. Because that sort of um, moral earnestness, you know, mm-hmm. in there was just – was very uh, impressive to me. And especially in contrast to my culture, which, you know, I didn't see that much of it. Well, There's a lot of sarcasm, a lot of cynicism, you know, uh, a kind of – gladly moving away from these old values and you know i found these old values quite attractive so um you know elliot t.s elliot discovered early um faulkner discovered somewhat early so uh, conrad i uh, took a, a course just in conrad from this mentor wow. in his house and uh you know read these serious <laughs> Uh, stories about, <clears throat> you know, with moral implications to them that 
So, so when you when you were approaching your your end at Emory, or sorry, not Emory at uh, Westmont, mm-hmm. and we're looking at graduate schools, mm-hmm. um, how did you end up at Emory? Was that did you go right there? Was there time in between? Well, I um, thanks to uh, Dr. Erickson, I, I got a few uh, awards, not a few, one really that was useful um, at the end of my college <coughs> years, which made me attractive, more attractive than I would have been from a small Christian college unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, again, I did this, as I mentioned before, I, I um, looked very carefully at the kinds of programs that were available, and I mm-hmm. only applied to four places. And um, so Emory offered me the best package. Okay. Did you have a sense of what you wanted, what specifically you wanted to study there, or...? Not not in terms of period or writers or anything like okay. that. No. So how did you how did you come to the? I mean, graduate school is the great narrowing down and narrowing yeah. down. So what does what does that look like for you? How did I, picking my dissertation topic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, huh. Well, one thing I wanted to pick a topic as far as a specific topic, and I got a very narrow one: vorticism. Which was an art and literary movement around World War One in in Britain. I wanted a topic that wasn't exhausted, or hadn't that there hadn't been eight nine hundred books written on that I'd have to be accountable for. So I wasn't going to do anything in Shakespeare, anything in Dickens, anything you know, any of the biggies. So I wanted it quite focused. I was had gotten very interested in, in the modernist period from taking the course from a professor, um, who I could see as would be a good director, dissertation director. So I, and the other, you know, the other area that I might have gone into, and sometimes later I thought I wish I had gone into, um, would have been the American Renaissance period of, you know, the Whitman's, Hawthorne's, Dickinson, mm-hmm. Melville. I love Melville, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, I could have been very happy living in that area as well. So I have to say again, this is this is where I go back to my apologies for the one class I took with you. I associate you. Almost exclusively with modernism because that's the course I had. Right. Um, how much of how much of of that literature is really at the heart of the kind of literature that you love, or how much is that's the course I took you with, so you were selling that? You know, it varies with, amongst the writers there. Um, I think that the modernists were still uh, morally serious and uh, hadn't become as flippant as uh, lit and art kind of became later. So all of them interest me some. Um, you know, again, I'm attracted more to a T.S. Eliot than to a James Joyce. James Joyce, I tip my hat to him and say, wow, you know, what a craftsman. But for a long time, I couldn't find a kind of enough moral uh, concern in Joyce. Mm-hmm. I think I need to – I think it's probably there uh, if you think about it in the right way. But he – I didn't love Joyce as much as I thought I would and was hoping to. Hmm. Um, I got hooked on Wyndham Lewis, who was a minor. He, he's turning in his grave right now for me calling him minor <laughs> because he was a very uh, combative fellow. Um, um, so, yeah, I still, I, you know, I, I've grown to like Virginia Woolf more than I did at the time. Mm-hmm. Um because Virginia Woolf is sort of a precursor to Marilyn Robinson for me. Marilyn Robinson is kind of a modern, at least some, in some of her books, 
a modern Virginia Woolf with the addition of faith, mm-hmm. you know. So. The, the, the writer that jumps out to me, again, from that course, and it might be because some of the other writers we were reading didn't need you to prop them up as important as I, I mean, my big takeaway was how important Ezra Pound is. Yeah. Um, maybe more so, more so what he did than what he wrote. Even. Right. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's become someone who, uh, I, I, I keep going back to when we, when we take our World War One trip, when we, um, I talk with the students about, we read a little, little of, uh, Mauberly, but also like, sure. Uh, I talk about Pound as, as this person who, I guess probably recognize genius out ahead of other people in certain ways. Um, and just, so I try to convince the students that he's this person they maybe saw in an anthology once or never heard of, but he's more important than so many other people in terms of getting people published and encouraging them. And, and I'm and glad that I infected you, Sam. <laughs> there aren't, there aren't many of us left. Yes, I have, I have a big, uh, <clears throat> I have a big volume. I have yeah. a volume of the cantos and then a volume of the footnotes of the cantos, which yeah. I periodically will take out and sort of shake my head and say, I don't know what I'm doing, but, yeah. but I still do it. I still look at it from time well, to time. I'm I'm very that warms my heart because I stick pounds I used to stick pound in that course for exactly that reason this guy is this guy's a nexus you know he's a synapse through which lots of stuff passes and he is uh, I would say an important I don't know whether he's a great writer so he's an important writer in his own right um, so I, I admire the heck out of pound partly just because of his passion. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who just organized his life around his passion for literature and made some mistakes, in uh, some big mistakes. Right, in, and that's the other part of the biography I always need to tell the students, too, is, yeah. is everything that makes him great makes him kind of bad at, in, in certain parts. Like, it's right. problematic. Right, yeah, because he became a fascist and, and uh, was on the wrong side in some important things. But, um, you know, I and, and that's actually a quality that I think that – quality of passion that um, is a defining quality of an excellent teacher. It doesn't have to be, and he was a teacher too. Pound tried to teach. He tried to educate even other writers in Mm -hmm. what was good and why. Um, It doesn't have to be overt passion, you know, a guy who's just, you know, gets worked up. But I I admired uh, professors in college who were quietly passionate. Sometimes they were very almost mousy. But you could tell this was really important to them. And if it was important to them, I always at least considered should this be important to me. So mm-hmm. that's one of the main things I admire about Pound. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a quality as you think about, um, as you thought about teaching, that you, not that you can necessarily project passion yeah. or, or think too consciously about that? Yeah. But. Well, it's a quality I recognize as important. It, it is uh, also a quality that I wondered about whether I really had it because I am kind of laconic by nature and um, so I had to fight against uh, maybe seeming to have a lack of passion in in teaching and I also had to fight against uh, cynicism about students um, I remember getting a very kind of uh, uh, come up from a student I guess it was probably been in the 90s who said, I guess I had made too many offhanded remarks about, well, you probably didn't read this anyway. And she sort of, I can't remember her words, but she basically told me, you know, if you don't assume we're taking it seriously, we're not going to take it seriously. So give us credit. Hmm. So uh, from then on, I always assumed I'm teaching to at least three or four people in a class. And if half of them haven't read it, that's 
their loss. Well, you have me fooled at least because yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, as as I, I wrote to you when when uh, we were setting up this interview, like I, this is still the stuff that I. This is my favorite stuff to read. It's the stuff I keep going back to. I was talking with my nine year old son who's not ready to read anything uh, that I'm t- that I'm interested in, but I told him you know that that at, at all I ask is that at, at some point in his life that he reads. Homer, Shakespeare, and Joyce, and those are the those are the three things. He's like, you can pick the rest, but like, I want you to, I want you to read things from these people, you know. Um, and that's great. So, yeah. well, I'm glad it worked for you. You are one of the three or four in that particular <laughs> that's right. class. That's right. Um, so, at, so you're in graduate school. You're at Emory, um, writing your dissertation on vorticism. Right. Um, was that a was that process an enjoyable process? Was that a tedious process? Was it was set up to be enjoyable, um, but didn't quite work out. Here's here it was a, this would have been fall of two thousand. I mean, yeah, let's see. I'm sorry, fall of nineteen seventy three, and I had done all my coursework and done the orals, and now it was nothing but dissertation. And I had this wonderful image of long afternoons in the stacks in the library, and this was going to be this was going to be fun doing kind of original research, and you know, and uh, sort of got a dawdling start, and then in January of two thousand of nineteen seventy four, found out that my wife was pregnant, so suddenly a job was crucial, which I thought was a disgusting development, not. Not the pregnancy, <laughs> but that I had to find a job. So I ended up writing a, that decision very quickly um, in about eight months from conception to completion. And um, so, I, you know, I really pushed because I wanted to get a teaching job for that fall, mm-hmm. which worked out. But um, I would have enjoyed it more if I'd had more time. Okay. So what was the, what was the the move towards uh, a teaching job? Like where 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 did you begin? Like everybody else, I went to MLA and got discouraged. Modern Language Association convention that was December of that year. Couldn't hard you couldn't even sniff up a you know an interview. Uh, but then you'd be standing waiting for the elevator, and some guy behind you would be talking about the six interviews he had that day and the next mm-hmm. day, and. You could feel the anger toward him developing <laughs> about the rest of us, rest of us. So I, you know, I looked at the usual places and sent out blind um, applications. But my mother-in-law, who lives, who lived at the time west of the Twin Cities in Wayzata, she heard about uh, an opening at Northwestern College down the road. Uh, I had never heard of Northwestern College, and I had. N- no confidence that my mother-in-law was going to find me a job, but she set up an interview on when we came up for the Christmas. This is before we found out we were pregnant. And between me and you and everybody who hears this, I walked out of that interview at Northwestern saying, well, it's a beautiful place. I would never teach her. And then it turned out, you know, uh, within a couple of weeks, we found out we were pregnant, and I said, I'll teach anywhere. And uh, so I took that job, and I, you know, I'm back to the fundamentalists again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the Lord has provided me that job, and I'm grateful for it. Um, but I, I, um, and I learned a lot, 
but I knew I couldn't stay uh, there for a long time. So I stayed there two years. Okay. And then and then it was from there to Bethel? Is that Actually, or? I just quit there without another job. Oh, really? Okay. Which my mentor told me was really stupid. Um, it probably was. It was stupid. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but Westmont had a one-semester opening because some guy was doing an England term. Okay. So I went and taught at Westmont for a year. And then um, – uh, a job opened here at we- Bethel while I was at Westmont, and I applied for it and got it. What, what were your uh, your initial impressions of Bethel? I mean, was that on your radar screen? Northwestern well, wasn't. Oh. Um, I had actually taught a I had actually taught a course or two here as an adjunct. I don't even know when I when that must have been like seventy five or something. Uh, so, you know, at the time Northwestern was a very extremely conservative place, and so Bethel seemed. You know, like the windows were open a little bit more to me, and I was comfortable with it. It was similar to Westmont, where I went to school. Uh, I, th- you know, I, I felt that it was fortunate that I had landed at a place like this and could see it as a place to make a career. Mm-hmm. So, um, when you think about, you know, so you were you were at Bethel from seventy five until no, well, seventy six, seventy seven was when I came full time. Okay, okay. okay. Um, so, so you end up being here about thirty years, thirty three, thirty three years. Um, what what kind of changes did you see over that time? It became more professional, uh, more um, less um, cloistered, uh, more like other schools, both for good and for ill. Um, expanded tremendously in size. Um, the higher hiring. You know, from and maybe I was, an, you know, a fairly early example of that. George Brushopper was the dean at the time, and he made completed uh, PhDs or the equivalent, uh, the norm instead of maybe somewhat of an exception. So it, I think it, it moved from being a, a kind of a local denominational school to being a national school. Do you have any particular like? Um Kind of highlight moments in the classroom here, things that stand out to you over the oh time. My gosh. Well, I mean, there's always the people who pass out in class. That's always <laughs> gets your attention. Um, highlight moments, or just takeaways. I mean, they don't need to be dramatic. Oh, you know, like 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 this. <clears throat> you know. Well, I, you know, you get. I I sort of had a theory that I don't as much care about what a student thinks of me during the class or during their time at Bethel as what they think five years later or 10 years later or 15 Mm -hmm. years later. So whenever I would get, which, you know, you get a kind of a steady little stream of thank you notes from uh, students years, you know, over the years, uh, it means a lot. You know, it kind of means like, well, you weren't just, um, you know, flipping hamburgers some people were shaped by it or impacted by it and are better for it. So, it meant, you know, it always meant a lot. And it kind of encouraged me to try to uh, honor my own mentors and good teachers I had. So I've dedicated books to them, and I refer to them and tell little stories about them in books and things like that. So that, that that's a highlight. You did two other things that are, are – are, um Interesting or relevant um, to me uh, in, in your teaching career, Bethel. One is you led multiple England term trips, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I, 
over the last couple of years have had a chance to lead two student interim groups um, to Europe as well. And, and uh, Chris Garrett and I talk a lot about sort of um, the power of being able to teach history on location. Right. Um, so I just do you have any reflections on, on um, being able to expand the classroom outside of uh, yeah. outside of these walls? I would say it's the single best thing I did at Bethel and maybe for Bethel, if I can, you know, grab some credit by starting that program. Um, because it does change the whole dynamic of teaching. It becomes more, you know, uh, Socratic uh, or, or um, what's the, Aristotelian, I guess, where you have a small group of people over an extended period of time talking about things of importance. Mm-hmm. And it tends to, it doesn't always work, but it tends to be a f- kind of filtering so you, you get a higher percentage of serious students, I think, than you might in a normal classroom. And just to see something come alive for a student and for myself. I mean, at my very first uh, England term in 79, I had never been to England. Hmm. And there was no Internet. Wow. So I'm – I can't – honestly, I, I can't well, imagine. Now, I, I have the unfortunate age of like I, I, I remember life before the Internet, I, but I can't imagine doing work before the Internet. I can't imagine how you how you do that, how you lead a trip. Well, you, uh, you uh, pick a bed and breakfast from a one-by-one-inch – ad in the back of a travel magazine and cross your fingers and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's a disaster but disasters make for great stories right um so but and then you're with you know you build relationships with students my wife is a wonderful part and crucial part of this whole thing she investigates their lives and their family their birth orders and their siblings and you know people come you know who are uh, very closed you know by Weeks four, five, and six are starting to open up, mm-hmm. and some of them have to face their you know problems that they've pushed under the surface. But it, you know, I, but more, it's just a kind of a flowering usually. So, you know, we have relationships with students back from that first seventy nine trip. In fact, I now do these trips for adults and uh, have had students from past trips go on our the adult oh, trips. Wow. You know, thirty years later, so it's been great. So the the other the other um, important thing which you did for Bethel, um, which has direct impact on me, and I am sort of your, um, I guess, pedagogical child in a certain way, uh-huh. is that you were part of the team that created CWC. I was. As well. I try not to let current students know that um, <clears throat> when I was still here. Yeah, we sat around and uh, some. There's pictures of us. Yes, I, I trot those pictures out all the time. Yeah, and I have hair. Then it's a wonderful memory. <laughs> And uh, it was a great – that was a great thing, just trying to talk about what we thought, you know, Western Civ should look like at a Christian institution and pushing it around and coming up with what we did, which I imagine has probably evolved yes. a lot since yes, then. Yes, yes, yes. Over and over and over again. Yes. Even though we know evolution is anti-biblical. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I did help invent CWC. Well, it, it, what's what's interesting about that is when I think about going into your classroom as a history major, um, is I feel like you taught literature like a historian. Yeah. Um, and I will say, I mean, part of my minor in the best teachers at my school led me to uh, multiple professors in, in the lit department. And I what I noticed was a – maybe it's not a tension, but it was for me as a student and especially as a student who was really watching his teachers as much as listening to what they were talking about – was the tension between a, and this is probably unfair to say, but 
Um, certain courses I took in the English department felt to me more like I was in a book club, and I felt like I don't know enough about this to have this conversation. Right. Where yours felt like I'm going to go and I'm going to listen to this guy, this brilliant guy lecture, and I'm going to learn a whole bunch of stuff, and then it's going to help me go read Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. Yeah. And and that was that. Like that's what you're the teacher I needed. <laughs> I don't well, know if I was I don't know if you were the teacher everyone but you were definitely the teacher I needed at that time. Well again that's an encouraging thing to hear and I do also have a theory that different students need radically different teachers and um I I was a total bomb for some students who wanted a different kind of approach. But my my theory about what should happen in a classroom uh in a lit classroom is they should uh know something you know, they should know something about the work, <clears throat> of course, uh, both its structure and its content. That is, how is the writer doing these things, which gets you into style and strategies and stream of consciousness and stuff. So you can see see how this is working, that kind of idea, as well as any vision of, of the world or that's being presented there. Uh, they also should know something about the life of the writer, because why, you know, why divorce it? And I don't care what postmodernists say. This is the person who produced mm-hmm. the work. And sometimes there's uh, mutual illumination between work and life. Sometimes there isn't uh, particularly, but just as its own source of interest, the, the life of these, these writers is interesting. And I always wanted them to know something about the context out of which writer and work arose so what's going on in history what's going on in science and religion and sort of you know intellectual history especially mm-hmm. um that has shaped is shaped by or ref, or is reflected in this these kinds of works so there was always those three problems. and i did i did a lot of the old <clears throat> i say i'm almost going to do an oxymoron here the old new critical approach which is you know Let's talk about these lines and see how they work. Because I wanted to teach him to read. And so, you know, if we unpack this short poem or this paragraph, it'll develop, you'll just start, it'll help you develop skills. Mm-hmm. And I probably did too much talking uh, earlier in my career, maybe even when you took me and I started doing less, but um, only because I could put a lot of that stuff on. Moodle or Blackboard or whatever it was and and refer to it more easily. Well, I'll say one of the great gifts you gave me, um, and this is a, a strange thing, but I, I remember going into that course thinking, I'm going to listen to what you have to say and I'm going to accept that. And I probably am not going to be able to read these things on my own. It's why I wanted to take that class is yeah. I knew I knew this stuff was the hard stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so two gifts you gave me. I remember first the first day in the, the Norton Reader you had assigned – uh, a bunch of stuff that that I didn't. I mean, I didn't know it wasn't modernist literature. You just assigned a bunch of poems, and I went and read them, and was thinking to myself, like, "Hey, well, these are you know I'm supposed to appreciate these." And then I went to class the next day, and you had your sort of modernist cap on and talked about how terrible these poems were. And I didn't realize, like, "Oh, hey, we cannot like things." That that was that was a really important thing for me. And I don't know whether you whether you actually don't appreciate that or that was part of you know kind of I want to set you up for that but that was really helpful because then I knew it was okay that not everything in the book had to be considered that way the other thing though is I remember when we read The Wasteland you walked us through probably the first uh, there's five parts right the Mm -hmm. first three and then you assigned us sections that we had to read without you and, and we had to write that up and I remember I 
took the, I worked on the la- second half of the last section. I re- just I distinctly remember sitting in the library. I had I think two dictionaries out because you had to look things up in dictionaries. You couldn't look them up online or on a phone because that didn't exist then. I remember reading the end of the wasteland, and and it was. When the when the rain comes, uh, spoiler alert! If you haven't read the yeah, wasteland, yeah, the rain yeah. comes. When the rain comes and the, the thunder, I just I remember. I'm actually getting chills now. I remember just sort of being overcome by how great this is, and I understand it. Oh, and, I, and I was so excited to come to class. I'm not sure I said anything in class next day, but I was so excited that I had read a piece of hard poetry, and I and I, I felt pretty sure I knew what Elliot was doing, and it was the most exciting. Well, that's thing. great. That's an epiphany, and I kind of. Had a similar experience, <clears throat> not my mentor, direct mentor, but maybe kind of a spiritual mentor in college. Uh, he was teaching, see, I mean, their version of Western Civ, really, and <clears throat> he was going to try to do uh, Burt Norton, Elliot's Burt Norton, uh, from the Four Quartets, and he said, "I want you to come in front of uh, like 150 students, maybe, and <clears throat> don't think, you know, read it, but don't look at any secondary material." or anything, just read it as many times as you want, and I'm just going to ask you questions about it. And he had the faith that I could understand something there, mm-hmm. which I actually, <clears throat> I, 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 th- I think I understood some things, and I wrote down about three or four things. But I butchered the first one. Uh, he asked me a question, and I wasn't ready for that question. And I kind of hemmed and hawed, and he took pity on me, and he just took over the conversation, and he didn't ever ask me another question. And then he made my points th- two, three, and four, hmm. you know, afterwards. And I, I kind of, I didn't blame him for it, but I thought, well, I did understand more than he gave me credit for, even though I was a total embarrassment in front yeah. of the group. Um, <clears throat> as far as the, uh, I mean, and that's that's victory for a teacher, is when you know it's the, it's give a fish versus teach how to fish, right? And right. when uh, students catch the fire if they haven't had it just for literature or for reading or for whatever the subject matter is that's a huge step and when they start to show independent ability to deal with the material that's that's success yeah and i will say i mean it and it also i mean if you want just one more compliment um it, i do i do all right it, i mean it also it, it fed it fed the thing we most want most of all which is lifelong learning i mean mm-hmm. i i remember that summer so after i graduated uh in that in, in my Year 22 of my life, I tried to read Ulysses two or three times, and I would get to the third episode, and I couldn't do it. Like, I, yeah. And now I know, well, that's a really hard episode. Yeah. I didn't know at the time. I thought, I'm lost. Yeah. Um, and I, I find it interesting. I was Stephen's age, right, yeah. 22. I'm 37 now, so I'm almost Bloom's age, and I read it about two months ago. And I just – I had – what I had in mind was that time reading Elliot, and I said, I'm just going to do this, and I'm and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach it kind of the way I approached um, – the wasteland, except I wasn't looking up everywhere because I knew I wasn't going to get through if I if I had to know everything. I just said I need to keep right. going, and it was. Um, I'm so worked up about you. I, I realize I'm a little late to the party on this, but like <laughs> this has been such an amazing. I've I, I bothered every person that I know, uh, and the problem is the problem is the people who've read it have read it a long time ago and don't want to talk about it. The people who haven't read it don't care. Yeah, but I just I'm like it's I. I mean, it's to me, it's the it's the uh, I won't use the Sistine Chapel example because I've never been there. It's standing in so, um, standing in Saint Chapelle. I was there a couple months ago, and I just remember being just in awe yeah. of it. And 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 that's how I felt 
reading Ulysses, finishing the Cersei episode, finishing these different pieces, and I just I I feel like I it's one of those markers in my life. There's a pre and post. Like I now I can't stop thinking about kind of what it is. And then I went and read the Big Joyce biography because I needed to know more. And because that was well, what would Dan Taylor have me do? He'd have me learn about Joyce and. And and that was amazing too. And so it's for me, it's still happening. I think I'm on a I'm on a, the slow version of that course. But. Have you discovered Harry Blamiers or Blamiers? I don't. It's M I B L A M I R E S. He has an episode by episode explication. Okay. That's not exhaustive. I mean, some of these guys will spend a book. Right. I, I was. That's what I was. Re- I was not reading him, but I was reading. Uh, I had a couple of things where people would like I would I would read the episode and then I, afterwards I would go read about what that was. Okay. So I could say to myself like. Did I get that or not? Yeah, and, and you know, and, and what I felt better about was most of the times like, yeah, I, I got that. Yeah, and, that, and that's the right order to do it. You yeah. don't want to know too much the first time around. Right, right. I want to return to your opening. Uh, the first thing you said, I don't. I will deny, <clears throat> officially deny ever uh, picking a poem from the Norton anthology and say it's a bad <laughs> poem. What I would do would be pick. Um, a uh, very conventional form, yes, and say this is what people thought poetry had to be. You know, we need to find the rhyme for the most part. You mm-hmm. know, it needs to be in more or less even lines. Uh, and so, and as you can see, some of these rhymes invert the word order in an unnatural way in order to get that rhyming word to the end. And I, and you know, my point is that with free verse, they just thought none of that's important. Mm-hmm. And so I might have been a little bit sarcastic and belabored some of the rhymes, but uh, right. Well, I, I, I just I, I think just, I used Hardy, and I actually think Hardy's a yeah. competent poet. Right. No. Well, I guess what I what I saw it as was again because I didn't have a lot of reference points for a literature class, so it was sort of the opposite of Dead Poet Society, where it's yeah, like, yeah. here's all the stuff that Mr. Keating loved. Yeah. Now I'm going to tell you why that stuff like there's something better, basically. Yeah. You know, and uh, and and again, that was that was really helpful to me though because it, it, it allowed me to. You know, look at some things we read and say, this one's not for me. This one's like I, I still read yeah. it, I still appreciated it, but there's certain I, there's certain authors I haven't gone back and 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 read a lot of, but there's some that I have. Well, part of it is the paranoia of teaching modernism to students who haven't had almost no exposure to it and are initially resistant. Mm-hmm. So you have to work very hard to make the case. No, there can be other kinds of poetry than what you like or are mm-hmm. familiar with, and and that also is why the you know, maybe do an extensive amount of explaining because, you know, nobody enjoys not understanding anything. So you, you want to show them how it, you know, you, you want to talk about the form so that you know how to get to the uh, understanding. See, here's the strategy, here's what they're doing, and if you understand that, then you can see where the meaning might come. So it, I always knew I was sort of working uphill, in, especially in the first few weeks of a 20th century lit class. Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing you mentioned in that, or I'll, I'll go we'll get back to that. Um, the other thing I appreciated about that course was the final exam. Um, mm. I still tell people about this because I think it's it's not. I don't give exams like this, but it was a great idea for an exam. Which is, you told us not to study for it. You said if you took this class, you should do well on this exam. Mm. And it was an easy exam. I mean, it was like this is the, basically. I think what you said was this is the, an exam. I hope you could pass ten years from now. Mm. Or like if you took this course and took it seriously, none of this stuff should be should be hard for you to recall because you've lived it. And, and in fact, that's what it was. And I, I always thought that was a really great idea for an example. Did I have an essay question? Um, 
there I think there may have been, but it was it was open enough that it didn't it wasn't. If you know anymore. anything you can you can write a yeah. you can write something yeah. in here. Yeah, I know I mean a lot of it was was <coughs> sort of uh, kind of, fa- there was a lot of factual objective stuff, but then there was all, but there was also, um, there was also an essay that was open, and then I think we also got points if we had, if you, if we had bothered to memorize any. Oh yeah, I yeah. often would include uh, extra points for memorization because that's another thing. I love students to go away with actual literature, yeah, in deep in their brain somewhere. So, and then the other, the other thing you talked about in that course, I remember reading the uh, the Faulkner. Uh, Nobel Prize speech, and you said, "You said yeah. everyone should spend time thinking about what they'll say when they win the Nobel Prize." So <laughs> now that you've been retired for a couple of years, have you thought about what you will say? I've thought about what I would wear, and I'm, and I'm, I'm just thinking if if they're new Levi's, would they let me wear jeans as long as I had a, a tux top? Uh, but I haven't thought so much about what I'd say. <laughs> All right, I think that would be hugely intimidating. There are so many great Nobel Prize speeches from the literary people, and I assume from other disciplines. I don't. Not everybody gets to make a speech. Yeah, I don't know. Um, that the the pressure to say something eternal, right, would be well, especially amazing. since others have. Yeah, that 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 ramps it up each time. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I want to I want to close with uh, th- with three questions that I ask everybody that I interview. Um, the first is, if you could design your ideal school or ideal curriculum, what yeah. might that start to look like? Well, it would be people living in community. Um, <clears throat> it would probably be one course at a time. It would be uh, hard to get into, but not uh, based on grades or intellect. You'd, you'd have to convince us that you're serious about mm-hmm. learning. And whether you're quick or slow on the uptake is not so important as serious about learning. And But serious... Uh, and also cap- capable of uh, playfulness. Mm-hmm. So it, it would, a lot of it would be on assembling a kind of community. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> it, it wouldn't be uh, necessarily assembling experts, the world expert in Joyce or something like that. It would be uh, people with the leaders would be people with a lot of curiosity of their own and very great question askers and people who loved other people uh, and, you know, wanted to see them develop and grow. I mean, if money's no object, then you don't have to have a lot of the features of the current mm-hmm. higher ed. And it would be just, you know, it would be like Christ and the disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, only that, you know, there would be more than one Christ you know, right, right. and more than 12 disciples. <laughs> right, right. I, I studied the Oregon Extension, which in lots of ways what you're yes. describing sounds a lot like that. And I know those people somewhat, the old generation, and have been out there. It, it does have an Oregon Extension feel where you stop for a day and go for a hike. We went to, uh, when I was out there, they, they uh, sort of ambushed the local, some local important um, oh, who was he? Had something to do with land use, <clears throat> and they sort of set him up where he thought he was meeting one of them, and he met all of us. I mean, everybody in the school, <laughs> and they all were, you know, was saving something, old growth forest or something. And he was, you know, he you could tell he knew he'd been had, <laughs> but he was very he listened and stuff. So yeah. All right, uh, next question, and this is—I realize this is a, a, a tough one uh, for someone like you. But if you could recommend a book 
Um, and it doesn't need to be the greatest book you've ever read, the most important book. But here's, here's how I'll frame the question. A book that explains something about you, what book would you recommend? Wow, what a question. A book that explains something about me. <clears throat> the fact that I like it would be... Well, I mean, I could name. And so, you know, this doesn't need to be set in stone. Okay, it's okay, not going to go right. on your grave. All right, or I'll, say, like I'll say Cancer Ward by Solzhenitsyn. Um, because it lays out these colliding stories of life and mm-hmm. how different people see the world. It has, you know, the fact of death there, uh, making everybody be serious about what they really think. Uh, you have the the scientific materialist view. You have the artist view. You've got the politician, uh, the worker, uh, and, the, and it's just this great cauldron. This sort of you know, in which you can pour all these things and put turn on the heat, which is death, mm-hmm. and see what people really think and feel and how they react. I think that's a great novel, and um, and it's, it's got some beautiful passages in it. And I admire Solzhenitsyn, the writer, you know, as much as any writer I know about so I'll, I'll take that one fantastic and then uh last uh if you could make one other media recommendation it doesn't need it can be another book it can be any other piece of media recommend it for what um same kind of the same kind of question you okay. know, so that this just expands it beyond a book yeah well again since it's not doesn't have to be the end-all be-all I would say it's – I'll nominate uh, – and since I'm sure no one else will nominate this, <laughs> uh, Henri Gaudiabresca's uh, sculpted head of Ezra Pound, the hieratic head of Ezra Pound, which I – a highlight of my life was seeing it in the uh, – just in the last seven or eight years. I can't remember what – which one of my trips to England. Um, but it's this – it's only about four feet tall. It's the only big piece of sculpture that uh, Gotti Bresca ever got to work on because he was killed in his early 20s in, uh, during World War One. <coughs> but he was a genius. And it's pound, it's stylized. I mean, it's semi-abstract, but it's, you know, also representational. And his eyes are closed, and Pound had this incredible hair that just burst out all over the place. And he's represented that by this knot in stone on his forehead that is obtruding, <clears throat> but also symbolizing Pound's intellectual energy, his, his mind. That This is a man of the mind. His eyes are closed. The external world of getting and spending and practicality is probably not, not that important. It's what's going on in his mind. I, just, uh, I fell in love with that piece during, during my dissertation, and uh, so I commend it. Fantastic. Dan Taylor, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Sam. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls, aluminum will fill our mouths. The cinema now.